The International IVF Initiative is a worldwide non-profit education project for the assisted reproductive technologies community, sharing scientific and practical knowledge for embryologists, reproductive scientists and anyone working in the ART community. Each episode will share an insight into the world of IVF, along with profiles of legends within the world of ART, latest news and wisdom from our community. Here's your host, Giles Palmer. Hello and welcome to Protect IVF, a special podcast about the overturning in the US of Roe versus Wade and its global implications. A joint venture between the International IVF Initiative, I3, and Doctors for Fertility, a group of reproductive endocrinology and infertility doctors with a mission to educate and inform policy on reproductive rights and to advocate and take political action for continued access to fertility treatment and preservation. You can find their website on doctorsforfertility.org. Almost half a century ago, the Roe v. Wade ruling was the basis for establishing a constitutional right to abortion. The recent decision in Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health demonstrated the increasingly conservative direction of the court in the US and prompts questions about the implications to civil rights, embryo rights, and health policy. What does this mean though for IVF? It has raised fears that it could have far-reaching implications and ramifications on people looking to get pregnant with the use of fertility clinics and using IVF. Will embryos created, frozen, used in fertility treatment, PGT, or even discarded embryos, will they have rights? Will trigger laws go into effect that recognize an embryo as a person? This closed Zoom meeting with open dialogue involves a select panel of experts offering help and advice and content to anyone that's impacted by these rulings, with examples of restrictive policies in the past and a call for action for all stakeholders. This podcast should support anyone that needs help and will offer advice to organise individuals and communities to fight restrictive IVF legislation in vulnerable states. So myself and I was co-hosting this with Serena H. Chen, MD, and together we had David Sable, Davina Frankhauser, Dr. Vivian Hall, Salou Ribeiro, Lucky Sechon, Lol Koo, Colleen Quinn, Stephanie Gustin, Declan Keane, Jacques Cohen, Lee Wilcox, Cynthia Hudson, Thomas Elliott, and Marianne Cervetes. So please enjoy the podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you all for joining, first of all. Okay, we'll try and make this um, very interactive, very conversational. And then I suppose, yes, well, Serena, you're the moderator. Okay, so you're- Oh, I am? You didn't, yes, I don't you think you told you're... me that. Well, of course you are. You're by definition moderator with me. Okay. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> why, you know, why are we having this conversation or rather why are we having this podcast? So my name is Dr. Stephanie Gustin. I um, am the medical director of the Heartland Center for Reproductive Medicine in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, we had a court case that gave historical precedent to allow um, the right to privacy, uh, which was called Roe versus Wade, which in essence allowed individuals to seek abortion care in the United States privately um, without regulation by the state or federal government to an extent. And that was is a 50-year-old court case that was recently overturned this summer with a separate um, case that sort of challenged Roe versus Wade, um, which is a, the Dobbs case. 
And the court decided that there wasn't um, a constitutional right to an abortion and that that any regulation of reproductive autonomy or the decision to have an abortion should be regulated at the state level as opposed to the federal level. So here we are, you know, a conglomerate of states that together form one nation, but we all have slightly different um, state legislatures and laws that affect the, the citizens of each state. And now we are seeing how that difference in where you live affects your ability to seek reproductive care as a whole. And that, as you know, we all know, can span from efforts to try to get pregnant and, and how those things are re regulated all the way through um, the desire to terminate a pregnancy for whatever reason, and even you know beyond that potentially. As it relates to efforts to get pregnant, the reason why that's coming up as a potential issue is that there are specific states that are looking at making it um, illegal to terminate a pregnancy at um, conception. So there are these states that have what are called personhood laws that define a person or a human or life at the time of fertilization, which is where things like fertility treatment and IVF get woven into this discussion um, in many states unintended, but nonetheless um, a, a consequence that if not um, well understood or articulated could dramatically affect our ability to do what we do as we do it. Um, and so that's kind of where this is coming from in terms of a fertility perspective, but also, you know, is having significant implications on access to abortions, but also management of miscarriages, management of ectopics, management of normal and abnormal pregnancies, because there is such um, a level of, of fluidity and, and maybe more gray um, in taking care of humans that people who are not involved in medicine and science don't fully understand, um, especially as it relates to criminalizing physicians who provide care for these patients. I am one of six um, fertility doctors who have come together to create Doctors for Fertility. It is a um, organization designed to educate and advocate for IVF and reproductive care nationally. Um, we know that there's barriers to fertility care prior to, you know, what's currently happening in our political climate, um, where one in eight couples experience infertility, we're not seeing, you know, all of that translating to appropriate and equitable access to care. So certainly one of our goals in general is to just make fertility evaluation and treatment accessible to anybody who needs it. But it especially in today's political climate where reproductive care and fertility care are potentially being compromised depending on where you live. We have rallied our voices together to first and foremost talk to protect reproductive care as a whole, but to let people know that in these in these suggested bans that they, they're much broader consequences, including fertility care, if we're not careful. And so really trying to use our um, expertise to explain to constituents uh, and, and to the, the lawmakers themselves as to how important language is 
and and intent and 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 the potential consequences um, from said, said language if it's not if it's not clarified. So what this means at the state level for patients, providers, clinics providing fertility IVF care um, is astronomical, and it really depends on where you live and what those state level legislations or potential legislations are or what they may be. Um, so all of us are in different different places in Nebraska right now. There, we have an, a twenty week abortion ban, and at this very moment, nothing has changed. However, our um, governor and likely incumbent governor have stated that they want one of the most restrictive abortion bans that exist. And, you know, if that were to come to fruition, that really could impact uh, my ability to do my job in the most safe and efficacious way for, for my patients. As it relates to patients and whether or not they're worried, absolutely. I think since the reverse of Roe versus Wade, nearly every single patient interaction I have, particularly new patients or patients who are returning to discuss treatment or escalation of therapy, all ask, how does this decision affect my fertility care? And again, at the moment, I have the ability to say, nothing has changed for you and we will continue as is and we will do everything we can to keep status quo as the indefinite plan for our patients. However, I do also let them know, for example, that we have, we allow patients to do on-site embryo storage, but we also collaborate with off-site embryo storage. And those off-site facilities have facilities in places like California and Illinois and Minnesota and all of those places um, are much less likely to be turned with abortion bans that could affect embryos than ours. And so, you know, I do reassure them that if they have embryos and they're concerned that we can ultimately transfer them into a state that has a more um, protective legislature for embryos, if you will. You know, that kind of begs the question, you know, for Colleen, like, why why is legislation going to be used to um, define how we approach medical care? Right. I mean, you know, we are changing how we use pre-implantation genetic tech, um, testing um, all the time. I mean, you know, when I started, it was called PGD, then it was called I don't know. Didn't we have something else before PGT? Like there, you know, we, there, there have been so many changes and based upon the technology, um, we change how we use the technology and to wait for legislation um, to be able to decide how to use emerging technology, especially in a field like reproductive medicine, when things are changing so quickly um, doesn't totally make sense. It seems like that would be very obstructive to care. It might be harmful to patients, confusing to doctors. So I think the question is, you know, what place does legis should legislation be at that level? I think legislation should be licensing people, making sure that they're safe and creating general 
um, safety guidelines, um, like, you know, uh, privacy, you know, infectious disease safety, uh, facilities needing licensing, doctors and providers needing licensing, labs needing licensing, but getting down to the level of saying, yes, it's okay to do PGT or no, it's not okay to do PGT. Um, you know, from, from a medical perspective, that could change next week, what we think is appropriate and what we think is not. So um, I think that's, that's yet another question. Um, Colleen Quinn, you're our legal expert here on the panel. Would you like to um, further elaborate? The biggest thing about Dobbs is how states are reacting with regard to the abortion legislation that's coming through and how you, uh, what you say with regard um, to each statute. And so an example would be Nebraska's legislative bill, which says that, quote, an unborn child means an individual living member of the species Homo sapiens throughout the embryonic and fetal stages of development from fertilization to full gestation and childbirth. And so that bill clearly classifies an IVF-created embryo as an unborn child. And then that bill also goes on to say, causing or abetting the termination of the life of an unborn child is a class to a felony punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Mm -hmm. So that is the scary thing about Dobbs. Dobbs has basically said, we're going to leave this up to the states. And then the state legislation is what is the scary piece in terms of monitoring it. And I know um, with Davina and her, and her work that she's done and the work that I've done in Virginia, we have really tried to monitor per these personhood bills um, and get the whole IVF community, the medical community to fight these personhood type bills. So I think that's what we're going to have to really um, watch as, as lawyers and uh, folks in the legislative arena is we're gonna have to carefully watch what are these state um, legislative folks. And I think around the world, other countries are gonna have to do the same thing. They're gonna have to watch what sort of legislation is being proposed and how are they defining um, a, uh, a person or how are they defining a fetus? And is that definition gonna encompass embryos? That's, that's the fundamental issue. Divina, Thank you. Divina, I'm Davina Fankhauser. Yep, I'm Davina Fankhauser. So to address that. I just want to say, Serena, the legislators at this point, they can actually create whatever legislation they want. Uh, years mm -hmm. ago, Arizona passed a law that said conception started two weeks before your period. Uh, and huh. yeah, so that's in existence. So right you can now. just make up biology. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And when I was working in Tennessee, I would say to a legislator, but but that language is unconstitutional. And they were like, so that it can be brought up in court after it becomes a law. So it is scary what they can do at the state level. Um, we created this fact sheet that you worked with us trying to educate each individual state about the value of fertility treatment. And we did get a response from a, a senator in Colorado where he really appreciated us being um, alerting him to be aware of personhood legislation and that they would keep an eye out for language in future bills um, because he and his wife had experienced infertility in the past. So they're, they're passionate about the subject. So I think we need to 
you know, be advocates and speak up and educate the legislators, because if we're not doing it, somebody else is, and then we can't control that narrative. So what you're saying is that a lot of legislators actually don't necessarily understand human reproductive biology. They don't understand in vitro fertilization and they write these laws with one um, objective in mind. And it sounds like a lot of people are trying to legislate elective termination of viable pregnancies, what you know the lay public calls abortion, but because abortion is a very wide encompassing medical term that means any kind of removal of pregnancy tissue from the uterus, uh, the laws are written in a non-medical way and can create all kinds of real legal issues for healthcare practitioners, depending upon how the laws are written. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Well, it's very encouraging that you had somebody respond to your fact sheet. So I think we're going to fertility within reach, hopefully is going to try to do a lot more fact sheets, right? For every state in the country. Yeah. Fertilitywithinreach.org. So a, a lot of great advocacy, education, and awareness. That's probably one of our biggest lifts because in our community, we're, we're kind of a small, super specialized, very quickly innovating community. And we have trouble keeping up with ourselves, much less everybody else keeping up with all the innovations that people um, are coming up with every day. And I think um, we are seeing this a lot in legislators that, you know, they're obviously not scientists or biologists or physicians. And, and it's creating a, a tremendous number of issues. Yeah, so hello, my name is Salu, embryologist, and uh, I wanted to uh, completely agree um, with Davina in terms of the, the, if they have not gone through the IVF process, the folks that are writing these bills, they will not have a basic understanding of basic science. And I say that because I'm working in California now to create a license for embryologists uh, through SB 1267, and I'll put a link here, which allows embryologists to have a license as a med tech and be recognized. And I had to, to many of the assembly members and senators uh, on both sides of the house in California to understand why that's important. And a lot of them has base, doesn't have much knowledge on the science aspect. And, I, and my primary communication has been with their staff aides or their chief of staff that is pushing this through. Uh, so that understanding, um, especially when something is more serious like this is happening in our state and country, uh, they have to understand the basic knowledge that a, a embryo that perhaps is in the incubator, it's a potential, but it's not a life yet. And that definition is important to, to me to, to be declared because otherwise this field may just vanish if we are not careful. Uh, so that's my, 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 my opinion on this. It's like we have to fight for it so we can continue being doing something that we love, which is to be an embryologist in my case. Has anyone looked though at the other side of the argument at all um, to see where they're, they're coming from? You know, to look, I, we, I've actually had quite a few conversations with both sides of the aisle. As a physician, we've all been trained to sort of be apolitical um, and to set our politics aside and to take care of the patient who's in front of us um, to the best of our ability. And that's what I do every single day. I think the problem is that 
a philosophical question, when does life begin, is not answered scientifically, right? That is the, the, the question of when does life begin actually originates from when does something have a soul? And science cannot determine when does something have a soul. And, and every religion has a different interpretation of when, when that occurs. So I think that's the problem, right? If we were taking philosophy out of this and using it as science, I think most OBGYNs at least would say life would begin at viability, right? So when a, hu when a human fetus can survive outside the womb would be when when, you know, beyond that, that, you know, something um, is considered viable or, you know, could live on its own. But even still, you know, in the Jewish faith, life begins with your first breath, right? And so, you know, that could be all the way to term when the baby's born. So I think, I think what has become a huge problem, huge problem in the United States is something that is standard of healthcare. It is basic healthcare. And healthcare to date is not something that is, should be politicized or should be anyone else's, you know, information or business has now become one of the hottest topics that everyone wants to weigh in on. And it's a problem. And I think that it's really unfortunate that people's philosophies of which we do not all agree because we all come from different backgrounds are now dictating healthcare. It seems to be like, you know, in the States at the moment, it seems to be there's, you know, there's more like division than ever. But again, I was speaking to someone else and they're saying, well, you know, the States has always been, you know, divided. And they reminded me of like Vietnam, for example. To answer your question about the polarization that's happening in the United States, right? Um, I think the biggest problem is that it is taking the authority of physicians away. So we are starting to lose our authority because there has been this instillment of distrust, um, this polarization of political parties such that, you know, I've seen places where people say, you know, doctors coming out and saying that, that this is unsafe for women um, is fake news or just trying to rile the base when, you know, the vast majority of physicians are not interested in politics and, and frankly are apolitical, like not politically active. We may vote just like everyone else has a vote. But if you look at the, our representatives in both, you know, the Senate and Congress, there are very, very, very few physicians that are involved. And that's because that's not our lane. And yet we are having to assert ourselves to make a public outcry, a call to action, that these laws that are being passed are detrimental in a much larger scope than I think the writers of these bills and laws could have ever imagined. I am one of six um, fertility doctors who have come together to create Doctors for Fertility. It is a um, organization designed to educate and advocate for IVF and reproductive care nationally. Um, we know that there's barriers to fertility care prior to, you know, what's currently happening in our political climate, um, where one in eight 
couples experience infertility, we're not seeing, you know, all of that translating to appropriate and equitable access to care. So certainly one of our goals in general is to just make fertility evaluation and treatment accessible to anybody who needs it. But especially in today's political climate where reproductive care and fertility care are potentially being compromised depending on where you live, we have rallied our voices together to first and foremost talk to protect reproductive care as a whole, but to let people know that in these in these suggested bans, that they, they're much broader consequences, including fertility care, if we're not careful. And so really trying to use our um, expertise to explain to constituents um, and, and to the, the lawmakers themselves as to how important language is and, and intent and, and, and the potential consequences um, from said, said language, if it's not if it's not clarified. So, what can we do then, uh, as a, as a group? So, um, one aspect of this legislative um, issue is that we really all have to be prepared as a collective to be vigilant about whatever legislation is being proposed, and then as we have done in the past with personhood bills, this the IVF initiative, Resolve, ASRM, um, just any of the groups out there. I have a list of all the fertility doctors in Virginia that I can email in a uh, in, in just a flash to say this legislation's up. Contact your legislator. Um, this is this is bad. The definitions are not good, um, and we've got to shoot this legislation down. We've got to work to come up with alternatives. So. Um, working together as a collective becomes critical um, in in watching out for this. You know, as Salus uh, just sent to us um, the legislation that he's looking at, um, we, we've got to really be vigilant about what's being proposed. Uh, this reminds me a lot about what happened in Italy in 2004 and 2005. By the way, my name is Vivian Hall. I'm a gynaecologist, fertility specialist, working in London. I was working in Italy. Uh, at the time when the law changed there. It was quite an emotional law, actually. It happened quite suddenly. It was quite unexpected. Um, and I think it was in response to the fact that Italy at the time had no regulator. And although the majority of clinics were operating responsibly, and, and some of them, in fact, were following HFEA guidelines at the time, um, some clinics weren't, weren't and they created uh, uh, a bad name for the, the fertility sector. And so overnight, we had a law introduced, which was called the, the Law 40, Legge 40. You can hear the dog barking. I'm sorry about that. Um, sorry about that. Um, and basically, it said that the embryo now has rights. And the embryo had rights which superseded the rights of the parents, the potential parents. Uh, and that was the paramount thing about the law. In fact, the embryo would have more rights than uh, a fetus, uh, uh, an implanted embryo, the fetus of the beating heart. So basically, the embryo had rights. Um, it, it was actually elevated to the status of a, a legit, legitimate child. So they had the rights not to be frozen, not to be tested, not to be discarded. Um, also included in the law about the embryo rights was the uh, only um, sterile heterosexual couples could be treated for infertility 
Um, there was no gamete donation and certainly no pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, the law was such that they insisted that all embryos created had to be transferred into the uterus to give themselves a chance to be uh, to, to implant, a uh, very Catholic thing. Um, but the, the, the thing was that if you, so, so the clinics themselves actually decided to, to do this the way that they would in, perhaps inseminate three eggs so that you would have a maximum of three embryos. And often if that happened and they were transferred into a young fertile woman and she had a, a triplet pregnancy or a twin pregnancy, then those patients did have the right to actually have a reduction of the pregnancy. So the fetus um, would, would not survive. Okay, so the embryo had more rights than a fetus with a beating heart, um, which, which seemed crazy to most people. So, um, so that, that law was introduced in February of 2004. There was then a national referendum in 2005. Only about 25% of the Italian population turned out to vote in the referendum. And as you can imagine, the majority of them were in favour of the law. So um, the law was not changed and, 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 and so it went on. And it's taken 10 years. It took 10 years. Eventually, 10 years later in, in 2014 or 2015, uh, it's almost back to normal, apart from one or two things. But, but basically, it's taken the persistence of the patients themselves and case reports of individual patients and their, uh, their, their doctors and embryologists in the field to actually fight at every level, national and international courts, courts of human rights, to actually overturn this law. The law has basically been destroyed, the, the law 40. Um, and the three main points were, first of all, in the case of embryo testing and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, for, not for PGTA, but for um, you know, genetic conditions, um, the case was brought that why, when a woman would have the chance of actually testing an embryo before having either a miscarriage or a, a, a child born with a, with a, a problem, she, she had been denied the, the, the right as a human being and as a patient to actually have, have treatment for that. So that, that was overturned. And so um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis was one of the first things that was reintroduced. Okay. Um, then there was the, the bit about um, women having to have uh, only three eggs inseminated to create three embryos. And that, that really implied that they were going to have to have multiple treatment cycles to create um, embryos enough to get themselves a, a pregnancy and a baby. And, you know, treatment cycles are they're, they're, they're time consuming and they're, they're, they're difficult for the patient. Um, and it's a, the patient's right actually to have as the, the most efficient form of treatment as possible and not to have repeated uh, IVF cycles if at all necessary. So that was the second thing that was. So the first one, the PGD, was overruled in 2007. And then in 2009, um, women, uh, there, there was a case where a woman said, look, I have the right to have as the most efficient kind of IVF as possible. And then in, in for, tw 2014, it said that only, heterose only heterosexual couples needing um, had the right to procreate, and that excluded heterosexual couples who had problems with eggs or sperm 
um, from having treatment. And so they 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 plead, uh, you know, that was their right to procreate. And, and so donor sperm and donor eggs was was permitted. So it's really been the patients themselves and the unfairness of the law from 2004, 2005, and the, and the, the hard work and the persistence of the embryologists and the clinicians supporting those patients, which have actually more or less overturned the law in Italy. I think you're absolutely right about that. So turning again now to the states, um, are we now seeing concerned patients? As it relates to patients and whether or not they're worried, absolutely. I think since the reverse of Roe versus Wade, nearly every single patient interaction I have, particularly new patients or patients who are returning to discuss treatment or escalation of therapy, all ask, how does this decision affect my fertility care? And again, at the moment, I have the ability to say, nothing has changed for you and we will continue as is and we will do everything we can to keep status quo as the indefinite plan for our patients. However, I do also let them know, for example, that we have, we allow patients to do on-site embryo storage, but we also collaborate with off-site embryo storage. And those off-site facilities have facilities in places like California and Illinois and Minnesota and all of those places um, are much less likely to be turned with abortion bans that could affect embryos than ours. And so, you know, I do reassure them that if they have embryos and they're concerned that we can ultimately transfer them into a state that has a more um, protective legislature for embryos, if you will. I wanted to say that ASRM and fertilitywithinreach.org and resolve.org are some of the organizations that we've really relied upon for education, advocacy, and some lobbying. Um, we are, I think, um, been talking to physicians um, and providers all across the country now since, um, since the leak of the Dobbs decision. And we are seeing that we, we are kind of feeling as a community or what I'm seeing as a community is that people are feeling that we really have to step up our game. And so we are starting an organization to augment uh, the things that Fertility Within Reach and ASRM and Resolve are doing. We're actually starting a political action committee called Doctors for Fertility. Uh, and I hope everybody will join not only ASRM, Resolve, and, um, and Fertility Within Reach and support those efforts, uh, but also join Doctors for Fertility. I think that we are at the point where education, advocacy, and lobbying may not be enough. It's absolutely necessary, but I think we are actually, this is actually becoming a real voting issue. And, you know, I'm your typical American, you know, I, I am not political at all. I'm seeing patients all day. I, you know, I know who the president is and maybe that's the limits of my political knowledge, but I'm realizing as I'm seeing these state laws come out um, and, um, and seeing that these trigger laws that are being passed are already impacting uh, medical care and medical autonomy, reproductive health choice, and access to care. I am actually feeling that those things truly are at risk. And, you know, as an American, you think, okay, we don't have to think about 
you know, getting access to health care or getting the right medical care. We don't have to think about women's rights or human rights. We take, you know, the women's vote for granted. We take access to health care for granted. We take reproductive health care autonomy for granted. And I think we are actually seeing threats to that now. And I think if we don't pull our heads out of the sand and actually vote on this issue, um, we will see those rights being impacted and being restricted. And we are already seeing consequences for our patients. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen in the news that you know a lot of hospital systems in some of these trigger states are actually telling doctors to change how they practice medicine to keep their doctors out of jail and out of trouble. Well, make it clear that her life was on the line, that you know the vital signs were unstable before you take her to the OR um, for the heavy bleeding during the first trimester of a non-viable pregnancy or for an ectopic. You know, um, our patients don't have unstable vital signs until they are almost dead. And the, the appropriate medical training is to take them to the OR and to treat them way before their vital signs are unstable. That is appropriate medical care. And this legislation, a lot of these trigger laws are trying to legislate elective termination of a viable pregnancy, but what they're really legislating 90% of what they're legislating is just routine, normal medical care that keeps people safe. So um, this, is, this is a lot, this is going way beyond advocacy. You know, I don't, I don't think we should be panicking or going crazy, but I do think we have to pull our heads out of the sand and we are going to have to all pull together and take some action. Hi, this is Salou. So as just going back to your how to reach out to the senator assembly members, uh, you need to know your audience and who you're speaking with. So reach, when you reach out to them, uh, trying to find those that are somehow related to any science or has done any legislation in the science background, so they have basic knowledge of medical or care. Uh, there's some physicians that are senators or assembly members, if you can reach out to them first so they can initiate the idea, because if if you don't have a bill to be created or a spot bill uh, to someone to support you, it's almost impossible to get this through either sides of the house. Uh, so when you find that person uh, trying to connect with them and some of the, the 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 legislators or senators in your state, they might not even talk to you because you're not in their residence uh, uh, jurisdiction. So uh, I always try first to the person who is in our residence jurisdiction, jurisdiction. And then second will be those that I have not received any response from my senator or assembly member. And then you will be reaching out to those that uh, are in the in the medical uh, field. So that are, those are all very good tips. And honestly, if people are very new to this, um, I would reach out to Fertility Within Reach because they can um, certainly help you with those things and identify the healthcare staffers, um, you know, the people who might be appropriate on the staff. And they have, they've talked with a lot of these legislators and they have personal connections in a lot of these offices and can pr pr probably connect you. And Salu, I would love for you to see Davina's one sheets, because I do think a one sheet 
for the embryologists for licensing would be a great way to present. You can, you know, drop off these very simple, colorful, single sheets that explain your bullet points and can get your points across. Great. Brad. Thank you, Dr. Um, yeah, sure. Um, you're in one of these vulnerable states, yeah? Can you explain uh, how how concerned you are? Uh, yes, uh, I'm Brad Davey. I'm an embryologist from uh, the state of Oklahoma. And uh, we recently had a law passed that basically defines personhood um, at the creation of an embryo at conception. Um, in regards to IVF, at least, um, we seem to be okay currently because they define it as you cannot do an abortion once it's in gestation. So as long as the embryo has not been implanted, um, we seem to be currently um, in the clear in regards to IVF. Um, you know, we have had a lot of a lot of patients, you know, that that are worried and transferring, um, you know, their embryos to offsite storage locations. Um, just very, very a lot of concern to people. Uh, we've talked, to, you know, to, to many of the legislators. Uh, a lot of our positions have been very, very active in you know, trying to get, uh, you know, the knowledge out there in the legislators' hands, um, but it's it's been a challenge with um, our current governor wants to be the most pro-life uh, state out there. So it's very, a lot of challenges in that regard, even, you know, when they don't know exactly what all that's affecting. So. Sure. Um, have you have you found that you know patients are thinking of going outside your state or or for, you know moving embryos about? Have you had any conversations of that or heard that? Yeah, we've had we've had a a big increase in in patients wanting to store their embryos off site just in case um, they decide later on that that they weren't going to use them. Um, there was a big rush on uh, on all of that as soon as it got passed. You know, a lot of people that were currently in cycles, um, you know, we're very worried about, you know, the, their PGT embryos um, in regards to those that are abnormal. Um, are they going to be stuck, uh, you know, having to keep those in inventory and and um, unable to to uh, get rid of them without uh, possibly being sued? So. Sure. sure. Um, uh, David, you've done some, some interesting work um, yourself and... Uh... And your colleague, yes, um, Abigail Cyrus. Cyrus, yeah, thank, Cyrus. thank you, Giles. Yeah, uh, even before the Dobbs decision, there was, you know, we, we were getting calls from uh, uh, the New Yorker, New York Magazine, New York Times, Washington Post, lots of articles written about effects of these decisions on the practice of IVF with the assumption that it's going to compromise either the choices that patients have or make uh, clinics have to decrease the quality of, you know, not operate at the standard of care. So we decided, you know, absent from all of this was any data, any numbers. So uh, what we decided to do is we wanted to define what the magnitude of the potential disruption would be if this was the worst case scenario. So we assume that every one of the states that has an abortion ban adopted some type of personhood statute 
and those statutes were interpreted in a way that compromised IVF care. And then we asked ourselves, well, if that's the case, we all know that our patients are amongst the most well-educated, motivated, and compliant patients in all of healthcare. So we thought it was reasonable to assume that each one of those would look at moving from their point of care to someplace else that didn't face these restrictions. And we just wanted to, first we wanted to quantify what that entailed. And then we said, well, how big a disruption is this to these individual patients? Well, we started out with, on the day of the first analysis about two weeks ago, every state that had effectively had a law on the books. Yeah, and obviously this is a moving target. There's states that have new laws that haven't been passed yet. These were either pre-existing laws or reflex laws. And it turned out that there were 18 states. And these 18 states accounted for approximately uh, 58,000 IVF cycles, a little under 20% uh, of the total number of cycles that we do in a year. In terms of the movement that they would have to do, on average, each of these patients that wanted to move from a state with restrictions to a state without them, the average move would be 250 miles to the nearest clinic that didn't offer these compromises in their care or a 500 mile round trip. The range was 16 miles to 850 miles for the different, uh, different clinics. Now, what was remarkable is the extent to which Texas was accounted for here. Texas accounts for about 8% of all IVF cycles or 25,000 of the 58,000 that we were talking about. So being that Texas was so disproportionately important just in terms of the numbers, we asked, well, is there anything that they could do differently? And we extended the evaluation and said, well, what if you included not only moving to other states, but maybe moving care to Mexico, or in some cases, the central you know, northern US moving to Canada? And uh, that would decrease the, uh, the, the level of uh, uh, the, the, the amount of travel by several hundred miles. Mexico would actually gain 16,785 US cycles if patients in the Southwest decided to go to the nearest IVF clinic that didn't offer, that didn't have restrictions and included their search to include Mexico. So it was a, you know, the, the magnitude itself of the disruption, each one of these 58,000 patients deciding to move their care either pre-cycle or moving their embryos or, uh, or essentially moving while they're under care, uh, it's almost, almost one fifth of the total, you know, almost one fifth the amount of volume of IVF we do in the United States. Now, we updated the uh, updated the analysis this past week, looking at states that were contemplating new laws, and that would add additional five states in, and that would bring the number of states that would be net exporters of IVF cycles to twenty four of the fifty states. So it's a some some really illuminating numbers. Now again, there's some extremes in our assumptions. We're assuming that every one of these states would adopt a law that severely restricted care, that these laws would be upheld, and that patients would en masse decide to move their care elsewhere. But it does, I think it illustrates a little bit just the extent to the type of disruption we are looking at. Maybe 
maybe we should bring in Dr. Koo here from, from Texas, yeah? To say a few words. Yes, Dr. Koo. Hi, I'm Lowell Koo, and I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I'm a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist here. You know, it is very scary what's happening, and uh, and everybody has done a great job summarizing, you know, what is happening in the current state of the nation. Here in Texas, we do have House Bill 1280, uh, which is a trigger law that goes into effect, or has gone into effect, rather, and it basically says that um, an abortion is prohibited from uh conception essentially inside of the woman's body so that term those that, that wording is in the law so we feel that IVF this time is still safe because everything is outside of the body however just like in any state especially the ones that do have these trigger laws um, bills are constantly being introduced that continue to uh, restrict even more reproductive rights um, and including uh, potentially even prohibiting IVF uh, just as uh, Serena had mentioned that there is um, a local legislator who has stated outright that he is coming for IVF, quote unquote, coming for IVF, which I assume means he wants to ban IVF or prohibit it or, or, or restrict it of some sort. So, so we are worried and we are like Serena beginning to learn a lot about politics and learning how to uh, go and speak our voices to the legislators and the lawmakers so that they understand what they are you know, legislating over so that they can understand the ramifications of, of their laws that they're passing. So we are also going to be um, uh, creating basically political action committees, which will then go and lobby and speak with the, the, the legislators uh, at length and, and regularly so that we are constantly in the forefront of their mind. So that's kind of what's happening here in Texas. We're definitely worried. You know, what's interesting is I know- And that, uh, Dr. Ku, talk to us about save um, IVF Texas. So we've started a Facebook page to try to uh, increase the voice uh, uh, for reproductive rights. And we have started a Facebook page called Save IVF Texas. And it's modeled um, after Dr. Gustin's Save IVF Nebraska. Exactly right. It is a it is a Facebook page that's private, and uh, we're we're going to be working together to try to spread the word to help um, this sort of grassroots movement to um, just to protect reproductive rights here in Texas. You know, it's interesting. I know that uh, David had mentioned that some patients might go down south from Texas to Mexico, which is you know an, an option. I have also heard that some uh, very interesting uh, ideas of maybe even having a boat parked out in the Gulf in international waters. And potentially doing not only, let's say, abortions, but also uh, egg retrievals and all that there. That's quite interesting. So so those are things that, uh, that we are thinking about uh, as we move forward. Wow. I do think that, um, you know, we, we do want to let our, not only our legislators know what's going on, but also um, really be communicating to our patients and this idea of Save IVF Nebraska, Save IVF uh, Texas, Hopefully we can do it across the country because patient stories um, as constituents really can influence how legislators think. So there is this anti-abortion leader in Texas who has said that, that uh, they want to uh, protect the embryos um, seemingly to the exclusion of protecting the parents. Uh, but um, I think that we, we do need to keep in mind that as scary as the situation is, they're you know, having this conversation and becoming more knowledgeable and then taking action and relatively easy actions, uh, like making a phone call or just 
talking to your to your legislator or sending an email can make a huge difference. So I think that's one of the big messages we want to get across here. There are a lot of organizations out there, um, ASRM, Resolve, FertilityWithinReach.org, DoctorsForFertility.org, who are, we're all organizing so we can help us all pull together so you guys don't have to feel helpless. You can say, you know, what do I do next? Um, we will definitely help you figure out how to make a difference. Just let's say that all the web starts that we mentioned and all the help, it will be in the show notes of the podcast, okay? So you can be proactive and you can reach out to the, everyone here um, on the podcast. Now, David mentioned, and of course, other people have mentioned about, in fact, what we see in Europe, in fact, you know, tourism or cross-border um, treatment. Um, can I just bring in people here, Cynthia and, and Lee, about um, storage? Have you? Have you seen, and I'll start with uh, Lee, have you seen um, uh, more storage taking place now across the borders? Have people asked you about that? Yes. Um, so I'm Lee Wilcox, and like he mentioned, I'm working in the offsite cryo storage part of the fertility world. Uh, we have. We have seen both clinics who have reached out to us and just want to be proactive about offering those options for their patients if they no longer want to store on site at the clinic. We've also had individual patients um, coming from some clinics that decide to work with Reprotec individually. We have even had some patients that have their specimens stored at other cryo storage facilities in these vulnerable states who want to move to one of our facilities in a state that they deem to be more safe. So it is a concern. I think it is prompting a lot of people that never would have contemplated moving their embryos um, to move them so that they feel better about their options going forward. And I think ideally we want to always have that ability to give those patients options about their embryos so that they have the choice of how they will um, either discard, donate for research, whatever options they would like for disposition, we wanna make sure they will continue to have that. And so I think like David did say, I think we will see people more and more um, exploring options, clinics exploring options about if they can't, if they don't feel comfortable having embryos stored in their state, then you would work with a partner to have them stored elsewhere. Hi, I'm Dr. Lucky Seacon, and I am a New York City-based reproductive endocrinologist and infertility expert. I will say that as, you know, a fertility doctor in a blue state where we have the privilege and the luxury, I should say, of not really feeling this direct threat, but also knowing that we don't want to be complacent and we should be vigilant because as we've seen over the past couple of years, it's like a slow chipping away at reproductive rights. Um, but, you know, being in this position and seeing patients day in, day out, you'd be surprised to know how concerned people are, even knowing that we are in a blue state. So I, I think about my colleagues in places where there are these trigger laws and abortion bans in effect. And my heart goes out to them and their patients because it's such a huge emotional, you know, physical, financial investment to decide to go through IVF treatment or to freeze eggs or freeze embryos. And I think anyone going through that process or contemplating that treatment, it's a big decision. And now to have the added burden and worry about what the downstream implications might be and what the limitations might be that are posed on the way that they decide to utilize their gametes or their 
embryos in the future, I think that just adds a huge burden um, and it's very stressful. And if patients are worried about it in a place where that is not the political climate, I can't imagine the conversations that are happening elsewhere around the country. Yeah, and that's Dr. Lucky Sakan from New York, New York City, which, as you said, should be one of the safest places in the nation. But uh, Dr. Sakan and I are actually going to be working on getting um, a little bit of extra legislation done because there are some people, some political experts who feel that um, the safe states, quote unquote, may not be safe if um, the, the objective of a national ban on abortion is accomplished and that extra legislation may be needed. And this is an area that maybe Colleen can help us with because it's definitely not something that I understand. I understand very well, but I do know that our governor in New Jersey, Governor Murphy, uh, passed two laws to number one, protect access to reproductive care um, in New Jersey, but then also another bill to protect providers of that care from being prosecuted or extradited by other states. Um, and it's a little bit scary to think that, you know, if, if I'm taking care of a patient who needs help from Texas, that I could possibly be prosecuted by someone in the state of Texas. Uh, but that's exactly what the law was written for. And um, I will be, you know, um, going to Governor Murphy, going to my legislators. Um, I actually have um, a phone call with my representative tomorrow. Uh, to talk about adding IVF to the list of protected reproductive care uh, procedures in New Jersey. So New Jersey offers now protection for abortion care, uh, protection for pregnancy care, and protection for contraception. And we have been told by some legal experts that um, specifically, um, Susan Crocken, who you probably all know is, has served at ASRM and been, um, and is a reproductive rights lawyer, uh, did say, you know, if it's not specifically protected, then it's not specifically protected. So we are going to ask for that extra legislation. I know Lucky's going to work on New York. We, we would like everybody in safe states like Salu in California to, um, specifically um, add protection for IVF and on a national level, hopefully adding uh, IVF legislation, just like the house recently passed a national access to contraception law. We do feel that, um, probably access to IV, a national access to IVF, uh, legislation might also be helpful in this idea of trying to keep IVF open. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'll just take, Oh, sorry. Um, I'll just pick up on that real briefly um, because it really does come down to education. It really comes down to educating folks. Um, the last I saw was a 2013 survey that said only about 12% of the population was anti-IVF. Um, Democrats and Republicans along the, along the same political lines generally support IVF. Um, and the idea is, is we have to be clear about separating IVF from these abortion issues. So here in Virginia, Governor Youngkin has proposed legislation um, that you can't have any abortions um, under 15 weeks. 
that's pretty clean legislation. Um, you know, that's that's really abortion centered. It's not directed at IVF. Um, and so it's this other legislation I talked about and that we've been talking about in other states when it's, I call it sloppy legislation, when it spills over into the IVF arena and it's not clear um, with regard to, you know, what is a fetus? When will an abortion actually occur? And so um, all of us, this whole collective, it's just awesome because we can get out there, we can help educate. Davina's got her great fact sheets. Um, and so if we educate, then I think most people are not anti-IVF and it's just a matter of getting the legislation right. That's, that's the critical thing. I think that's very true, but it also puts us in a very difficult position as physicians. Um, as embryologists, once the embryo is out of your lab, um, you know, your job is done. As physicians, we, we do have to take care of pregnant patients. We are mostly doing egg retrievals and embryo transfers, but we do take care of patients through about eight and a half weeks, most of us. And a lot of this legislation does impact what we do. And ASRM um, and a lot of other organizations, I think um, we, we absolutely want to speak to our strengths and our knowledge and expertise and educate people about IVF. But even anti-abortion legislation that does not impact IVF will impact medical care. And so it's a tricky area to be in. Are we getting into a position where we are um, making anti-abortion legislation that could still be harmful, more appealing and more easily passed? So it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough, um, it's, it's not so straightforward. And I think we're, we're all gonna have to keep talking about that. And educating people. I also think that even though the vast majority of the population is not against um, this, is, is against this legislation, the fact that they don't vote and they don't speak up uh, and are not politically active um, will um, may land us in, in some trouble. So those are, those are my concerns. So I just have two quick responsive points because I totally hear what you're saying, um, but other people have their hands up too. So I want them to talk and, you know, we lawyers, we can, we can talk, talk, talk. Um, so uh, two things. One thing is the sloppy legislation and that's, that's the wording. We have to watch the wording. The second thing is how you spin it. So I worked on legislation in 2019 to get Virginia's um, art statute changed to allow for the use of donor embryos. Um, and I worked with uh, two gay guys, um, my clients on that legislation. And uh, it, it was, we got the Republicans to agree to that legislation because we spun it as a pro-life bill and we spun it as there are all these embryos in storage, et cetera. So some of it is the wording of the legislation. The other way is how you, present how you present the legislation. And if you present it in a way that's effective, we were able to get that legislation passed, which I was astonished um, simply because we, we presented it as this is a pro-life bill. There are all these embryos in storage we wanna to bring to life. And if we allow people to use donated embryos instead of you know, having to create their own all the time, um, we, we will, we will save these embryos. Um, yeah. and it worked. So, um, yeah, I know that I'm a little bit more optimistic, but that's know. a wonderful example of the superpower of this field is that we can look anybody in the eye and say, we are clearly pro-life. We build families. And I, and I do think we have to 
we have to use that superpower. Uh, David, waiting patiently. Yeah, it's I'm gonna, a question for my more politically active colleagues is why has, or maybe I'm wrong, but why is it that the reproductive endocrine community, it specifically and slightly more broadly, the OBGYN community, been left to, out to dry by the rest of healthcare? Like, I would think there's a world where you have states legislating bad care, i.e., you're not allowed to surgically take care of an ectopic pregnancy. You're not allowed to do a DNC on someone with a septic inevitable abortion. And this is now your face jail. Where is that part of the world where every doctor in the United States goes on strike for three or four days to no, retain a, control yeah. of medicine? Well, I, I think that would be to the detriment of patients. So that's why doctors can't, we can't strike, right? We just have to keep going. But yeah, I feel like it comes down to, I think it comes down to women's health in general. It's always yeah. been a vulnerable area. Um, and we, we have a misogynist healthcare system. Why do we spend right. billions of dollars on erections and so little money on maternal mortality when we have one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world? It's, um, I think it all fits together. And those are things that we should try to change in reproductive medicine. I, I, I agree with everything you say. We're talking about talking and educating, but there's room here for a very well-educated tantrum hmm. from, you know, we you know, show that physicians as a whole, not just OBGYNs, but where's the AMA on this? Saying you can't legislate bad care and hold criminal prosecution of doctors' heads for doing what you know we're, we're supposed to and have to do. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I like how active, and obviously I support how active our field is being, but we are, you know, there's a, there's a greater picture here. If you legislate that, you know, acute appendicitis cannot be treated surgically, you know, it's like, well, what's, it's, you know, it seems ludicrous. No more ludicrous than what I heard a few months ago, that people are not being allowed to prescribe methotrexate. Just, just, so it's um, if, if anyone's aware of things that are going on, pan healthcare, I'd be very curious about it. I also honest. think a lot of these medical organizations are tightly regulated in terms of what they can, the types of change that they can affect. And, um, you know, some of them are not allowed to get politically involved or put money behind certain candidates or political parties. Um, and I think that's where organizations like Doctors for Fertility, you know, can fill a gap where, you know, organizations like ASRM and Resolve may not be able to um, get as politically involved. And, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand that nuance. Um, well, I guess maybe it's my turn. Uh, so I'm Cynthia Hudson. Um, I'm an embryologist. And, you know, I, there's so many so many good points people are bringing up today. It's, it's hard to know where to start. And David, I love your suggestion about a walkout. Um, I think, you know, personally, I think that would force people to declare a position and people don't want to touch um, this with a 10 foot pole. I think they would rather stay on the sideline and, you know, we don't want to declare myself for or against, you know, pro-life. I think, I think people tend to, to shy away a little bit, but back to the, um, you know, the issue of, of you know an embryo and whether or not that's a protected life, I, I think I, I worry about the the efforts and the you know the the call to action of being a little bit too narrow, frankly, because I think you know an embryo 
I mean, to me, this, you know, it's oversimplifies, but it becomes a geography question. And so is that embryo located in the fallopian tube or in the uterus, or is that embryo located in a Petri dish in the laboratory? And I think that we need to be really careful about protecting IVF necessarily when we're really talking about whether or not this is a life depending on the, the the literal geographic location of that particular embryo. Um, you know, with, with regards to storage and, and disposition, it's, it's, a, it's a great concern. And Dr. Kua actually was on the phone with a patient from Texas yesterday that is planning to transfer her embryos um, to, we, you know, I work with Tomorrow Life Science. We just opened an offsite repository, you know, with our technology that's in it. And she wants to bring her embryos to New York because she's concerned about her potential disposition you know, choices down the road in Texas. While it does specifically say that IVF is okay, that's you know, today at August 2nd, you know, we don't know what's gonna happen in 30 days. We don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. So I think, I think these are real concerns for patients. I think that we need to be careful about, you know, and, and as you know, everyone is saying, words matter. Right. You know, fertilization is a very specific definition. You know, we can argue what conception is. We can argue what all the things, but fertilization happens the day after we get eggs and sperm. And, you know, again, I don't want to do ICSI on a boat. So I hope we never, you know, get to that point where we have to go into international waters. But, you know, it's if the words are written such that this is now a protective life, it shouldn't necessarily matter where it is. And, you know, it, it speaks to then this broader concern about, you know, reproductive care and just women's health care in general. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the, the rheumatoid arthritis community should be armed, locked with us because they can't get methotrexate. You know, I mean, there are so many groups that are affected by these declarations and these things that we, we need to be careful about how we're positioning you know, our argument and, and who we're excluding and who we're not. And again, our words matter just as, just as much as their, their words matter. I think those are very good points. And, uh, you know, when Brad um, was talking about the Oklahoma law, I think, um, you know, those, that law was not written by medical professionals and um, the interpretation by the lawyers I know at, at these uh, IVF programs is that, well, this is our argument for why we can continue to do what we are continuing to do. But if we look at, um, if we ask the legislative experts, ideally Oklahoma should have a law that says specifically IVF is, you know, IVF is accessible and reasonable and safe to do in Oklahoma, um, because there, there does, um, they, they still are in a tenuous position despite those couple of words saying uh, embryo or fertilization in the uterus. It is still, you're very right, a tenuous position. Um, so, and, and that's where this idea that even, you know, even the safe states need legislation. And, you know, we are already in a country where access to care is extremely poor. I mean, fertility within reach has been around for a very long time because Davina um, suffered a lot of significant consequences 
for not having access to care. I mean, last time I looked, reproduction was a basic human life activity. One of the, you know, beyond survival, probably our second priority is human re is reproduction. Um, but uh, the United States is one of the few developed nations that doesn't provide access to uh, fertility care. And people that can't, um, that have trouble conceiving on their own, um, they're, they're treated like they want elective plastic surgery, which really, and, and that has real consequences, increased morbidity, increased mortality, increased hair, care costs, increased cost of, of, uh, to the medical system. We know that if we offered access to IVF appropriately, that we could dramatically reduce morbidity and mortality um, job loss, divorce, depression, anxiety, as well as the costs of fertility, because we would people would have access to the safe, safest, and most cost-effective care. And you know, um, a lot of other developed nations um, do offer a lot more access than we do. And and now we're in this position where even IV, uh, you know, even the legality of IVF is of concern. So. The, this is a serious issue, and we and we also live in a nation where the birth rate is declining. Um, so I'm not sure um, what people are thinking, but we are that will not only cause an enormous amount of human suffering, but will impact the economy. So um, it it's um, uh, I do think um, we need to get up off of our seats and actually speak up. And uh, David, I love the idea of um, what, how did he put it? A walkout, a walkout. A lockout, yeah. Or even the tantrum, right. say, even the tantrum, right. say, which, is, a collective. Which, is even, yeah, which is even better, which means that, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not doing any harm to your patients, or whatever, but you can certainly, you know, throw your toys out of, you know, out of the pram. As but he's right. This is not just a reproductive medicine issue. This is an issue that impacts all of healthcare, And this is not just a woman's yeah. rights issue. Yeah. This is a human rights issue. Mm. And, and some of the, which Sir David, again, alluded to in, in some, some of his other research, and again, you mentioned about access to care. I'm pretty sure he was mentioning that, you know, there's going to be you as physicians who are going to be moving out of state or not doing the fellowships there. And I don't know if you've had experience about That's that. That's such a, a great point, Giles. We have heard directly from a lot of the fellows. There were a, a large group of fellows at the MRSI meeting in Chicago in June. And we did, um, there was a special session offered with um, a constitutional lawyer to talk about um, Dobbs. And um, a lot of the fellows did raise this concern of, I'm not sure I want to go and take a job in Oklahoma or in Texas or, you know, uh, in Louisiana or, you know, one of these states where I feel like my ability to practice medicine, my ability to take care of patients may, uh, may be hampered. Um, uh, and, you know, and we already have a crisis where there are not enough physicians, not enough nurses, not enough embryologists, not enough access to care. And now, um, you know, doctors are, uh, you know, concerned about going to these states where they're very much needed. It makes sense. I mean, if I was opening an IVF clinic, I wouldn't, I, I would a hundred percent steer clear of anywhere that is, there is an abortion ban because, you know, it's just such a, a 
climate of uncertainty, the fact that no one can give anyone any sort of reassurance and all of the state legislators are saying, well, it's at the discretion of prosecutors. That's very disconcerting. Have I thought about fleeing? I am originally from Lincoln, Nebraska. I left um, thinking that I would never come back, actually. And I went to medical school at Georgetown in D.C., which is where I met my now husband. And then we couples matched and did our training, our residency and fellowship at Stanford in California, uh, where we just thrived. But then when we started having our family and started looking at long term, Nebraska sort of came back on our radar and I found my dream job. This is this is without question where I want to be. I um, am part owner of a, an incredible practice where we get to teach and take care of the most incredible patients. And I have a family of staff and colleagues that I would do everything I possibly could to protect. So um, do I want to leave? Absolutely not. Have I thought about leaving? I've mentally done the exercise of where could we go next? And I have circled back with, it's not an option to leave. We've got to figure out a way to stay. And that's why we've been sort of working tooth and nail to get this accomplished so that we can protect reproductive care in the state of Nebraska. But I think about David's comment about there not being greater support from other groups. I think about the AMA only recently, I think it was Albert Sue who went to the AMA and was able to convince them that infertility is actually a disease. And that was only, you know, within the last, I think, four or five years that that happened and he was able to accomplish that. I think that, that speaks to Colleen's point about working collaboratively with others, but I don't think it's just about reproduction organizations, um, but the AMA, um, getting legal organizations to take a stance and, and to protect fertility healthcare. I think all of that is going to be needed in the future in order for us to um, really protect IVF. Yeah, so I just want to make some points here. And I think it's a great discussion. And I like the idea of the walking out. I mean, not really, but uh, because we have we have to have the oath of medicine to protect our patients. But it goes in a, a several levels of not only clinicians, and that would be a nurse practitioner, a PA, or an embryologist, or anyone related in helping in that patient, in that specific uh, emergency that, that so everyone might be liable in the eyes of the prosecutors. But it will be surprising to many of you that we have people even in our fields that doesn't want to touch uh, the subject matter. They want to talk about it. They're just not uh, there. They, it's like, oh, someone just let someone's going to talk about it. You don't need to talk about this because myself as a, as a past president of the CRB, which is the College of Reproductive Biologists, I had members that not saying my core group, but members uh, of collectively that were didn't want to talk about it. Did not was just reclusing themselves, and 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 uh, it become it was uh, it's it was like I don't want to be involved in this discussion because my 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 uh, I don't support the, I do support what happened with the recent uh, uh, abortion bill that has been. Uh, uh, so it's there's people within the field of reproductive medicine that is yet not 
pro-life uh, or we just have to be more education because the more education we have with our group and the population, the more we have voting members that can uh, uh, vote into our uh, in our favor in terms of protecting life. And this is, it can be a, 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 a it can be a, a, a it can be times that will be dark times, but we have to be ready for that, and we have to be ad, using our adv advocacy groups to fight for this because uh, we will uh, need a lot of support on this. I think some other things that we need is we need to learn from history. We need to learn how things were handled in Italy. We need to learn from states that currently don't have fertility clinics in them and see how they manage care, like Wyoming. Um, what do they do? Uh, and, and utilize the research and the data that is out there. I love the work that David and Abigail have been doing that's exactly the type of information we need. You know, we we were calculating how many births there were in a given year to be able to try to show the value of protecting IVF in, in each state. So I really think that research and history and learning from others is going to support our advocacy efforts. And talking about learning from others, let's take a break a little bit from the US for a short time and see what's happening in Ireland, just across the pond, uh, where new IVF laws are being debated. My name is Declan Keane. I'm an embryologist by training, having first started practicing in 1992. I'm currently the Chief Strategy Officer with Future Life. It's a large pan-European group of uh, clinics, IVF clinics, genetic services, egg banks, sperm banks, etc. Um, and I'd like to talk today and give you my opinion on how uh, Roe versus Wade is just an example of how legislation, societal changes can impact on the way fertility treatments are provided across each country. And specifically, I can talk about where I practice myself in Ireland. Our viewers must remember that Ireland's culture, its politics, its society have, have been influenced by the Catholic church and religion for many, many centuries. So it's a, it's a very unusual situation. And whilst we're in splendid isolation over in the, the farthest uh, western side of Europe, we're also heavily influenced by our UK neighbours. So in our common law and in most of the practices that we adopt are, are something that we've uh, ad, ad taken on from the, the UK neighbours. So Unfortunately, whilst the UK has the HFEA, Human Fertilization Embryology Authority, we have no legislation in place in Ireland. One of the few countries left, last remaining, I'd say, in Europe that has no legislation really that's governing specifically all facets of IVF medicine. Well, look, to be very honest with you, we've been self-regulating. So we have the Medical Council uh, Standards for Ethics and Medical Practice. So that governs our doctors. We've always looked to the European groups or to the UK groups to say what is practical and applicable and what should we be doing in the embryology laboratories. So we utilize those standards as well. But as it stands, as I said, there's no legislation specifically governing all IVF practices in Ireland. So it's a bit of a gray area. And that's what raises issues. Uh, despite something I've been calling for, for over three decades now, whilst I've been working and living in, in, in Ireland, working in the field of IVF, there's, there's there is thankfully some legislation that's in draft and currently passing through the various stages of government approval. 
whilst it's something that I am personally delighted to see eventually progressing to reality, there are areas um, that are somewhat concerning, I suppose, uh, which all practitioners in the field in Ireland are seeking to get clarification on. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a number of different things. Like one of the examples is you must, it's compulsory to have fertility counselling by recognised counsellors. Now, if I'm going to undertake an IVF cycle myself, of course, I want to hear what am I consenting to? So the medical doctor and the clinical team should be consenting. And I always describe to patients, consenting just means these are your choices, your risks and your rewards. I don't know if fertility counseling, thinking about the emotional side and how's it going to impact and decision-making matrix should be forced upon people. Interestingly enough, if you want to donate your eggs or sperm in Ireland in the future under the new legislation, you will not have to have fertility counseling. So it just seems to be a little bit um, at odds with things, but it's very positive indeed to see a dedicated regulator being put in place in Ireland. That's one of the parts of the act of legislation. And this indeed will give confidence to patients that the practices that are already in place across our field are robust, they're regulated, and that they'll be industry best practice. So that's really, really important. So it's not as onerous as what was implemented in the Italian model. The Italian model, if you look back on it, was very, very liberal, very, very liberal. And in fact, they could do what they wanted. And then all of a sudden there was a, um, a cataclysmic kind of introduction of very restrictive conservative legislation brought in. In the legislation that has been proposed to be implemented by the end of this year or early next year in Ireland, um, best practices, across Europe and the UK would say that you can create embryos for the use in IVF, but that they it's not that they have a right to life. That issue is not there. So we can discard embryos. We can carry out pre-implantation genetic testing, but it is not for sex selection. And it is not just for screening out uh, for just to try and pick the perfect embryo. It must be that they are, are specific diseases. And there's a list of about 500 diseases that have been added to the list. So look, th- there's, there's still a little bit of feedback from the service providers working with the government out to try and fine tune things. But no, it won't be as restrictive as we've seen in other uh, jurisdictions. We would love for everyone to go to the fertilitywithinreach.org website and sign up for their email list, doctorsforfertility.org website, sign up for the email list. Please donate. All these efforts do take a lot of um, a time and resources. I do think you people should figure out who their legislators are and just, just saying, you know, I'm a reproductive health professional and I help people have babies and I am really concerned. And how do you feel about that? And what are you going to do? I also think knowing what people are voting for is important. We did see with this contraception bill that um, was passed in the House that um, uh, uh, like, uh, I think 195 representatives actually voted against access to contraception. And all of us in reproductive medicine use contraception um, for our patients on a regular basis. Not only, you know, we don't use it for contraception because we're usually trying to help people get pregnant, but obviously contraception is a very important um, medical tool to be able to help our patients stay safe and for us to be able to do our jobs. So the fact that 
so many representatives would prevent access to care, I think is really something to think about. And I think we, we all have to think, um, you know, maybe, you know, even though my representative is going to pass that bill and lower my taxes, we might have to choose between human rights, reproductive rights and taxes this time, because we, we are, these things are at risk. Um, and it, it's a little bit scary as an American to think that we have to think about access to healthcare, healthcare autonomy, women's rights, reproductive care access. Uh, but I, I do think that time is now, unfortunately, we are already seeing an impact. Um, Cynthia? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, we were chatting earlier, but, you know, even today, there is a vote in the state of Kansas and the state of Kansas, um, the clever um, legislatures that they were, they put the vote as value them both. And so if you value them both, meaning both lives, you should answer yes. Do you value both? And that would effectively strip the right to have an abortion out of the state of Kansas constitution. And I think this is something that we need to be very cognizant of. I think we need to be, again, words matter. You know, I mean, I, 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 so they are purposely misrepresenting the situation to get this legislation passed. Right. Well, of course, everyone values life. And so you should say yes. But a yes vote means you strip the right, you know, to have an abortion out of the state constitution. And I think, you know, we, we just need to be very conscious of all of these different actions and the way that they're being presented. And, you know, from an education standpoint, I mean, you know, Davina and everybody at Fertility Women Reach and ASRM, it's there's it's just it's almost it's, it's daunting in the sense of how do you keep up with all of this, right? I mean, how does, how do you, I, I just spent four days in Missouri visiting my in-laws quite close to the Kansas border. And every single day, there was nothing but conversation about this upcoming vote and how it was going to affect and how could we help and how could we educate? And, you know, you're, you're surrounded by people that actually already know. So how do you get to the people that don't know and don't understand? And I think these are really good educational things for all of us, most of us that are not in the political action or legal or communications field, we're in the reproductive science and health field, and we're trying to make people pregnant. We're not necessarily trying to, to legislate. And it's an interesting cross-section of um, what we're going to need to do collectively to continue to allow people to have families. It's, it's, uh, it's really challenging. We've talked a lot about um, the circumstances, and in the last few minutes, if we can, we just think about. And I'll bring in my co, my co-moderator Serena. In a nutshell, okay, what can we do? Okay, this is also a global forum. Um, it may be coming to other countries. We've already seen changes in the law um, recently in Hungary. So. Um, could you just sum up what you think people should be doing leaving this uh, podcast and, and how we can pressurize people for change? I think people need to get politically active. And what we want to do at doctorsforfertility.org is try to make that easier. So we hope you will join us, doctorsforfertility.org. We're just, we are just starting. There's a um, we have a tremendous organization and a lot of energy 
and I hope people will join and pitch in uh, with their voice and their money and their energy. We, um, we will be very active on social media. And uh, so if you follow, follow myself, Dr. Lucky Sakon, Dr. Lowell Koo, um, we will be tweeting and posting and TikToking and doing all of those kinds of things to try to get the word out um, in terms of education and specific action items. Fertilitywithinreach.org is a tremendous organization and um, we would like you to support them as well. Um, we rely on them for a lot of our intel and research. Uh, Davina's doing a phenomenal job. Uh, she's already made a huge difference in terms of access to care in this country. And I know she's gonna continue to do that. Um, I think we're all, most of us um, from the United States are ASRM members and we are going to be working with ASRM and resolve.org um, because they also work on education and awareness um, and advocacy. And, um, but as uh, Dr. Sakon said, um, it's time to ramp it up and raise the bar and actually get politically active, get behind legislation and candidates that will support keeping IVF open and keeping IVF safe. I was actually working in Italy at the time when this law was passed. Um, it, it, was, it was emotional. It was very difficult for everybody. Um, the whole thing about an, an, an embryo, a, a, an eight cell or a, a blastocyst embryo having more rights than a fetus was just anathema to the people working in the sector. Um, and that was very, very powerful for the people that took on the fight against this this law. So after all of this, the, the law was introduced and, and quite understandably, it had to be played out properly and the democratic process and debate and discussion and taking it back to the courts and everything. And the law has basically turned back to normal. The only things still uh, not um, uh, available in, in Italy are surrogacy, um treatment for same-sex couples or se single women there's no embryo donation but for for the large part they they have a very comprehensive and and very e excellent uh, fertility service but, but but think about the 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 10 years that have passed in which patients who couldn't have treatment in italy and couldn't afford to go abroad the majority of people who, who wanted treatment and could afford it went elsewhere. They went to Switzerland, they went to Spain, they came to the UK. Uh, and those those patients who who couldn't afford treatment have actually perhaps missed the opportunity to become parents or, or um, it's very sad really, because it's now being reversed. I do have one more thing to add. Yeah. And so the one thing I would add is that this should not be taken for granted being active, educating, being an active educator about protecting fertility health care. You can't assume somebody else is going to do it or someone else in your practice will represent every single voice must be heard. It must be used in order for us to succeed. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. We do hope you enjoyed this session. Please leave a review and please give us a star rating. We really want to hear what you think of the podcast and don't forget to read the show notes with useful links. 
Be sure to visit ivfmeeting.com where you can watch our back catalogue of webinars. Plus, you can sign up for future ones, download our electronic membership card and find all our social media so we can stay in touch.